Um, I forgot to tell Gordon that both of my parents went to Purdue, and so did not be rooting for the Huskers on Saturday. We'll see what happens. Don't hold it against me. Um, I'm not the church on the mountain. I'm used to being behind one of these, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk around so you guys can okay with that. All right. So um, this morning, I want you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Here's what I want to do um, for us today. I want to leave a little bit of my story into this. But I want to ask us a couple questions today that we're just going to pull straight from the Bible, straight from God's Word. I just want to, just want to show you how, how the Bible can just shape, so like God's Word, shape who we are and how we're going to operate, how we're going to think about Him, how He's going to grow us, how He's going to move us, how He's going to shape us. And so I want to pray and we'll dive into Mark chapter 10. God, you are good and you are holy and you are righteous and you are the creator and sustainer of of all things, and God, just, um, uh, my voice is failing this morning um, just with the cold that I've had. So I just pray to give you the strength just to uh, make it through this morning, make it through this. Father God, we give you today. I pray that you be glorious. Amen. Well, I am from Norfolk. I moved um, to Norfolk from Dallas, Texas a couple years ago when I showed up in Norfolk. Anybody ever been to Norfolk? Just raise your hand over there. Um, they actually say it Norfolk, which is kind of funny because it's not spelled like that at all. There's spelling problems up there, not um, like you guys have down here. Um, and um, anyway, it is a couple hours away. I got up early this morning. I'm going to tell you about how my morning started out. I get in the car really early this morning to come down here. I got the steaming cup of coffee ready to go. I have to swerve to miss this cat that's in the road. And I spilled this coffee just all over me all over me, and uh, yeah, it's still all over me, and uh, so I could be here this morning, and then I walked in here, and I thought, I didn't know it was homecoming week, and I just thought, this is the most interesting school. (laughs) (laughs) Mark chapter 10. Mark is one of the four Gospels, and Mark is what I call this, this snapshot Gospel, and by that, here's what I mean, Mark is all about giving us little pictures Really, really fast. If you've ever read through the book of Mark, the word immediately is just used over and over and over. Immediately, Jesus did this, and immediately, Jesus did that. And Mark's trying to do us little snapshots about who Jesus is, and what he's about, and why he came, and what are the types of things that he does, and how are we to live in light of that. So Mark is 16 chapters long, in the very middle of the book, chapter 8. You have this incredible story. Jesus has been with his disciples for... For, for eight chapters now, and they get into this town called Caesarea Philippi, and this town was known for all of its idols, worshiping false gods, and they get outside of this town, and Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? They've heard the things that I do. They've seen the things that I do. Who do the people say that I am? And they, they pipe up and say, well, some said you're John the Baptist, or you're Elijah, or you're this prophet, or that prophet, and then Peter. I love the apostle Peter. He's got a bad case of foot and mouth syndrome. He always says the wrong things, but not this time. This time Peter says, you are the Christ. In the middle of this book in Mark, you get this very first time that someone other than Jesus is saying that he is the Messiah, he is the Savior. Ever since that point, in chapter 8, you get these pictures of what it means for people, what it means for us that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, what does it mean to follow 
him. And so as we get to 10, chapter 10 this morning, he's with his disciples, he's been doing these miracles, and he's making his way to Jerusalem, the holy city. They're going to be traveling to Jerusalem. And if you've got a pen, I want you to write this down. You'll see this question come up a couple times. It's a question that I just want us to ask today. What do you want Jesus to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you? You got it written down? I'm going to see this a couple times. Look at me in chapter 10, starting in verse 35. Mark 10, starting in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Right? Can you just imagine going to Jesus and just saying, Jesus, do whatever we want you to do. Right? This, is, this is pretty bold, right? This is kind of gutsy. Right? I don't know that I would go up to Jesus and just say something like that. But they've walked with him. They've seen how powerful he is. They've seen him do amazing things. And they say, Jesus, do something for us. Because they know how incredibly powerful it is now. Jesus is going to throw some shade at them in a minute. But not because they ask this question. What he's going to do is he's going to ask a question that's going to dig the motivations of their, their hearts. See, I became a um, believer 12 years ago um, when I was a senior in high school. Um, didn't grow up in a Christian home. Um, so if you do grow up in a Christian home, praise God for that every single day. But I became a believer through a handful of circumstances. And um, I picked this book up as a 17-year-old. A and I just, I didn't have a clue what to do with this thing. Like, this is difficult. This is hard to read. This is hard to understand. The first time you pick it up. And then the second time you pick it up, it gets a little bit easier. And the third time, a little bit easier. And then all of a sudden, you start reading this thing all the time. And things are starting to make sense. And here's what I love about the Bible, guys, is that it's not simplistic. But it is simple. It's not simplistic. It is simple. And here's what I mean by that. This book is deep. And it's honest. And if you let it, God will use it to shape your life, to grow you to be more like his son, Jesus. And so what we're going to see in this is we're going to see that they're, they're wrong in their motivation for asking Jesus to do anything. But they're not wrong in approaching him boldly. And the lesson I just want to see is approach Jesus boldly. If you have the righteousness of Christ in you, approach him boldly. So often we approach Jesus like, like Jesus, could you do this? Or, or if, it, if it works, would you do this? Or, or I hate to bother you. And they approach boldly, truly believing that he could do anything. Jesus already knows what they're doing. So we know that the question in and of itself isn't wrong. But now Jesus is going to get at what's really going on in their hearts. Look at me at verse 36. And go ahead and just underline this. This is our question. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And this is the question that's going to expose the motives of the heart. What do we really want Jesus to do for us? And I'm going to look at verse 37 because how they respond is interesting. And they said to him, grant us to sit, 
one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Unpack this a minute. I just want to show you something. See, how they respond just reveals the tragically just superficial nature of their understanding of Jesus. They understand he's powerful. They understand that he's a king. They want him to do something for them that's going to make much of them. What are they really asking for? Just kind of read over this. You're thinking that, well, sit one at his left hand and one at his right hand in his glory. When, I, when I'm trying to do that, I'm thinking we're talking about heaven. Well, Jesus, someday when you're heaven, let us just sit up there by you. If we understand the culture and the context of what they're really saying, they're asking something different. The disciples are aiming at something different. See, they understand that he's making this trip to Jerusalem. And they want to use Jesus' journey as an opportunity to make much of themselves. If you look forward just one chapter in Mark, Mark chapter 11, you the story that we all know is the Palm Sunday story of Jesus triumphantly going into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. And as Jesus walks into this city, Hundreds of thousands of people are chanting out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as a king! And what do the people do? They're taking the shirts off their back, they're taking palms, palm they're putting them down, they're hailing this king in. And you guys know what happens five days later? The crowd, instead of chanting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're chanting, Crucify! Crucify him in five days' time before Twitter, before Snapchat, before Facebook. In five days' time, public opinion changes this fast about this guy who's supposed to be the king. Why? Why can public opinion change this fast in so few days? It changed because Jesus wasn't what they really wanted. It changed because he wasn't really there to do what they wanted him to do. See, Jesus walked in and they see this guy who's a king. They think, the king's arrived. The king that they always wanted. The king who's going to take back their country. The king who's going to get them out from underneath the thumb of the evil Roman Empire. And one week later, as they realize that Jesus doesn't have an army, he doesn't have money, He's talking about weird things like saving them from sin and being light instead of darkness. They don't really want him. Who needs that? And sadly, James and John didn't have a much deeper understanding of who Jesus was than the crowds did. When they said, let us sit one at your left and one at your right in your glory, what they thought Jesus was coming to do was to set himself up as the king. And then as people looked at the king, they would look to his left and they would look to his right and they would see us. They would see these guys. In other words, when people see Jesus, put us in a place where they'll see us. And so they exalted Jesus in order to exalt themselves. So here's the question that I just want to ask of us again. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Because it's a question that exposes your motives. When I first became a believer, I play this game kind of like, like, let's make a deal with God, right? Have you ever done that? Like, so I played, um, I played football in high school, played football in college, um, and, and I, I just kind of did these little deals with God. God, if you would let me have a good game, then I'll follow you forever. 
12 years looking back, right? I don't remember the scores. I don't really remember the games. It doesn't mean that they weren't important at the time. But I would do all these little deals with God. God, help me do this so that I will be made much of. I was trying to control God. And we do this all the time. God, I'm the best. I'm the sovereign decision maker. Just go all the way back to Adam and Eve in a garden. God, you're holding out on us. God, why don't you want us to know good and evil? Why, why won't you let us do this? God, we should be making decisions. God, you're holding out on us. Give us the fruit. And ever since then, it's played out generation after generation after generation. It plays out in your life and my life when we struggle with this. Who's the sovereign of our lives? Who's the one who ultimately makes the decisions in our lives? You? Me? Or God? And often what our actions show. We have to actually say this, verbally put this in front of what our actions show is that we would rather have God sit over there and you and me be in control. You ever do this? Right? Here's the crazy thing about this, guys. You ever thought about this? I lose my car keys at least once a week. Maybe twice a week. I'm not good at spelling big words. My wife is crazy directionally challenged. Couldn't tell you what it's out. Couldn't tell you any of that. And the fact that we, as human beings, would look at the sovereign creator, the righteous one of the universe, and say that we know better than this question, what do you want Jesus to do for you, reveals the motivations of your heart. They have incredibly bold faith. Let's champion that with the self-seeking faith. Now, let me look down a few verses, just a, another story. You can see this exact same question asked again, but this time with a different response. Look at me in verse 46. And they came to Jericho. So they're on their way to Jerusalem. They'd come to Jericho about 18 miles away, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, hang on to that word, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So there's this, there's this crowd of people following Jesus. What's he going to do next? What's he going to say next? Who's he going to heal? They're, they're traveling. They're all going to Jerusalem for this big festival. And as they travel, they come across this blind Beggar, what's his name? Bartimaeus. He's a blind beggar. He is one of society's outcasts. In that world, if you were a blind beggar, you were a nobody. Society didn't really care about you, didn't have any importance. No one would have missed him. He's just sitting there. Verse 47. And when he heard, if you take a note, so you just, when he heard, why would he heard? Because he's blind. He can't see anything. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he can't see him. He doesn't know what he looks like. He hasn't seen the miracles. He hasn't physically seen Jesus. He's heard. And the Bible, we know that faith comes by hearing. And hearing is enough for this guy. So when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, he doesn't know exactly when Jesus is going to be walking by. He can't see. But he's heard the chatter of the crowd. He's heard the chatter. 
But Jesus is coming by. Jesus is coming by. So what does he do? He just starts, he just starts crying out over and over and over. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. So can we just play the quiet game here? Like, be quiet. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I want to think about this title here for a minute. Son of David. It's incredibly significant that he chooses to use this title. There's this Old Testament expectation for generations. There was this prophecy that, that one day a redeemer was going to come. A savior was going to come. The Messiah was going to come. And one of his names was the son of David. And so this blind beggar sitting on the side of the road hears about Jesus. He hears what he's done. And he knows that this is the wrong awaited son of David. And so he says, son of David, have mercy on me. And here's what I want to parallel with what James and John did. This is bold faith on the part of this beggar. Both the two disciples and this beggar, they have bold faith to keep crying out. He's crying out. His crowds are telling him to be quiet. He's not giving into the peer pressure. He's saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. Courageous faith. But I want you to notice how they're different. Both of them bold faith, but different heart motivation. Verse 49. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak. You're taking notes. I want you to underline this word cloak. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. So Jesus says, Call him. Disciples got to be kind of rolling their eyes at this moment, right? Like, like what? But why do you care about this blind guy? And Bartimaeus jumped up immediately. This guy who's been sitting in the dirt. This guy who's been crying, crying. Uh, he jumps up and he runs to details. He, he runs to Jesus, but, but notice the details. What does he leave behind? There's his cloak. What's a blind guy sitting on the side of the road with no jobs and no friends? Oh, he has a cloak. He leaves all that he has on the side of the road as he springs up and runs to Jesus. He leaves everything behind as he runs to Jesus. And some of us get so weighed down by the things of this world. What are the things that might be keeping you back that you throw off as you spring up and you run to Jesus? What things can you cast off as you run to Jesus? Verse 51. Five minutes, five minutes, he runs to Jesus. And then it says this. I'm going to underline this. the same question. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And this is our question that we're asking today. It's the same question that James and John asked. Boldly called out, what do you want me to do? And they said, make us look good. Now, what do you know is this blind beggar who boldly calls out, what do you want me to do for you? Responds in a different way. Look at the end of verse 51. The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus, I want to see you. I'm blind and I'm desperate. Have mercy on me. Let me see you. 
Verse 52, Jesus says, Go your way, your faith has made you well. Sort of well in, in the Greek language that this was written in is the word sozo. It's where we get our word for salvation. Literally saved. So Jesus said, see, your faith has made you literally saved. I want you to know that blind Bartimaeus sitting on the side of this road recovered more than just his physical sight. He also recovered his spiritual sight. Go your way. Your faith has made you salvation saved. And the beautiful irony in these stories is that the people who can physically see Jesus can't spiritually see But the blind guy, the guy who can't physically see is the guy whose heart is softened, open to what Jesus would have for him. He wants Jesus for Jesus. He wants Jesus because he's the one who gives sight. He wants Jesus because he's the long-awaited Savior. This guy's heard enough to know that it's true. So this question, what do you want Jesus to do for you? Reveals the motivation of your heart. You want Jesus to make much of you. You want Jesus to make you popular, well-liked, great athlete, great student, great job someday, great fill-in-the-blank. But you want Jesus first and foremost fundamentally because he's the Savior of the world. This reveals is our motivation. I want to go back and look at the story kind of connecting the stories and we'll kind of finish up with this. I want to flip the question just a little bit. Instead of what do you want Jesus to do for you, which reveals your motivations, I want you to ask the question, what has Jesus done for you? What has Jesus done for you? Here's how Jesus responded to that initial request of James and John. Look at me at verse 44 of chapter 10. It says this, Whoever would be first among you must be servant of all. For even the Son of Man, so that's Jesus, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what has Jesus done for you? Be a servant. Because Jesus came to serve, and in serving, he gave up his life. So why did he do that? He did that as a ransom a ransom freeing those who were enslaved to sin. Ever since our very first parents, Adam and Eve, decided that, you know what, God? We know better. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to run the world. Ever since then, all of us have made that decision to be silent in our lives. And Christ comes freeing those enslaved to sin. He lays it all down. So this question, what do you want Jesus to do for you, exposes your motives. The question, what has Jesus already done for you, redirects us to this loving, serving, saying, you're going to just think about this for a minute, probably our closing thought. Um, when I first became a Christian, my understanding of how sinful I was, just about like this, and my understanding of beauty and grace and 
mercy of Jesus is about like this. And I understand that there was this, I'm a, I'm a pretty wicked person. And Jesus is amazing. He's beautiful. And as I've grown over the years, I've grown to understand just how wicked my heart actually was. And every single year, I can say that I just I grow in my understanding of this. Are you guys tracking with this? And as this has grown, instead of me just leaving me in this place of depression, just terrible person, it's made me grow in my understanding just how beautiful Jesus is. So as these two things separate, this gap in the middle is just gratitude and joy at what Christ has done, and it's going to change your life. Does that make sense? I would not want, maybe I can get a volunteer, but if we could put up on screen all the thoughts that you've had run through your head this week. Anybody volunteer for that? I'd probably lose my job. People knew all the thoughts that I actually ever had. As I grow in my understanding of just how sinful this heart actually is, just led me to this place as I reflect on this question, what has Jesus done for me? I just understand how beautiful, gracious, and lovely he is. And with that comes true freedom. To not exalt myself. To not be threatened by other people. But to walk in freedom, I am the Son of Christ, fully adopted into the family of God with an inheritance waiting for me eventually, but also available to me now. And that leads me to a place of security and safety. So here's the question what do you think about e groups? E groups? So I want you to just think about this. Hopefully, there's just going to be some kind of heart program. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Just be really honest with yourself. When I get with God and I pray, because he knows all the thoughts that you have anyway. When I, when I get with God and pray and ask him for things, it's fundamentally asking him to make me look good. To make much of me, to grow me in all these things. And the second thing, way to kind of come back to this and use Barton Mance as your example, but what has Christ done for me already? How is looking at him and seeing his beauty. How can that change me to grow me? Do you guys see everything again? Does that not be fair for us? Yeah. Would you just bless your mercy, your grace? I pray that we have bold faith like the disciples had, like Bartimaeus had, but in our faith, you would redirect us by your spirit that we would be people who see you for you, that we love you for you, that we're not just excited about a Jesus or a King or, or a Messiah, but we're excited about the Jesus that was presented with the Bible. We are excited about being followers of Christ. We're excited about salvation found in Him. We're excited about growing more and more in His life. We're excited about being used by Him for His mission. Not just using Jesus as a way to make ourselves greater. But it's a lifelong journey. Pray that you use us. Pray that you make much of yourself among us. We pray this in the name.